Can you believe it? Well, if you enjoyed Thanksgiving last week, you can certainly believe it. I uh, hope everybody did have a, uh, a good Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, I'll say the obligatory things like, I hope you didn't eat too much, and, you know, but I hope you ate as much as you wanted and didn't leave the table hungry. Today we begin a new sermon series, and it is um, going to be here in the as we move towards Christmas. That's our, our focus over the next uh, five weeks, uh, four before Christmas and, and the one after. And so there are many different approaches to the uh, a Christmas sermon series. Um, you, we can take the uh, first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Matthew or the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and those two books are the only ones to... Uh, describe the birth of Christ. So we could choose one, or as is often done at this time of year, we just put the two together uh, as though each of them are incomplete on their own and we we make a a reconciled uh, account and we talk about that. Uh, This year I'm taking a more topical approach to this season uh, rather than just pulling out last year's sermon series. Which would you would all be remembering and going, Peter, you said that last year. It's here in my notes. So, you know, I don't want to, want to do that. So our, our theme this year is to look at the paradoxes of Christianity and to consider how the birth of Jesus uh, embodies those. Now, paradox isn't a word that is usually associated with Christmas unless, you know, I want to come to your Christmas if it is. Uh, but... it's a statement that initially seems to be nonsense and after a little further study or explanation makes sense. So for instance, uh, I I probably listen to too much sports and sometimes you'll hear them talking about a, a small player, a short player, and they'll say, he plays big. So a small player plays big. That makes no sense. How can he play other than what his size is? Um, maybe if it was in hockey, it would mean that it's a small guy, but he hits hard as, like, as somebody that's hard, uh, larger than he is, that you expect to come from someone larger. In basketball, it means that they, he can probably jump higher. And so he's up there getting rebounds about, uh, at, at the rim with the tall players because he can jump. So he's short, but he can jump. And so he plays big. But if you just take that statement on face value, he's small but he plays big, you have no idea what they're talking about, do you? Because it just is nonsensical. It's a paradox. How can this be true? Often, it involves the use of opposites. And so we might look at this. Uh, this is actually our, our title for the, the series. Small things, uh, good things, come in small packages. Now, we've probably heard this one so often that we're thinking, well, yeah, we all know that. But let me take you to a Christmas tree, Christmas morning, and all the presents that are under it. Does anybody go looking for the smallest one? Right? Because we're intrigued by the biggest one. And we have to be told and reminded, hey, hang on. Good things can come in small packages. 
because naturally our attention is drawn to the big. So, as I said, we're probably so familiar with this that it doesn't really strike us in the same way, but I, I think it applies to, to Jesus and to this time of year, for sure. Now, we're still in November. Uh, in case you lost track, it is still November. And uh, that's a good thing because I don't want to rush to Bethlehem today. All right? I know it's the Christmas series, but I don't want to rush to Bethlehem today. I'm going to uh, take most of today to set the scene for December. I think often we pick up the um, narrative, whether it be in Luke or Matthew, the birth narrative of Jesus, and we don't really stop to think very much about the world that Jesus is being born into. And so I want to take some time today and go over some of that. And to be honest, this has become a little more of interest or or a little more urgent to me since I think it was last year and we did did a sermon series about being in exile. And we looked at some of the minor prophets. And, And it emphasized to me how important the exile period was in forming the people of Israel informing expectations for a Messiah, and informing the world into which Jesus is born. And so I've probably gone over some of this in previous weeks. It may be familiar to you. For others, if you haven't been here, maybe it's brand new, so uh, bear with me. I tried to put all this information up on a timeline up here on the screen, and it didn't work. It was too cluttered and too detailed and... So you're just going to have to listen along. But I want to take you back to the year 175 B.C. You probably can't think of anything that happened in that year. Maybe you can't think of anything that happened around that year, uh, within 100 years. But in 175 B.C., in the kingdom of Syria, a new king was appointed. This was uh, part of a a kingdom that had been formed after Alexander the Great died. His uh, empire was split into four kingdoms. One was in Syria, one was in Egypt, one was in Greece, and I think the other was over in sort of the area of Persia. I could be wrong there. But certainly the other three I'm, I'm sure about. So in the one that's in Syria includes the land of Judea and the people of Israel as part of its territory. So in 175 B.C., Antiochus IV becomes king. And uh, he took upon himself the title Epiphanes. You think, well, that doesn't mean anything to me, but have you heard the word epiphany? It means... What we, what we talk to is if somebody has an, an epiphany, they have a revelation of God, that God reveals himself to that person. We use it more casually, perhaps, as just, oh, I had a new idea that's really good. But generally speaking, it's about God. So Antiochus says, I am the revelation of God. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. When you see me, you see God manifest, or the illustrious one. 
So Antiochus is uh, Greek, and he attempts to eradicate the Jewish religion from the nation of Judea. And, and it's a long process, but ultimately it comes to a head in Jerusalem at the temple. No big surprise there. And he places statues of Greek gods in the Jerusalem temple. And then a little bit later, he sacrifices pigs on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Now what we need to understand is it's not Antiochus versus the Jews. The Jews were already in a conflict amongst themselves. They've been in exile, they've come back, the land has been resettled, Jerusalem's been rebuilt, Ezra, Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt way back in the year 500. So we're in the 160s. So the temple's been there for ages and uh, worship has been taking place. But as Alexander the Great spread and as the, the Greek culture spread, there are quite naturally Jews that say, hey, we should adopt Greek culture. Um, we should become Greek. We should have, you know, Greek... That they sent representatives to the Greek Olympic Games and different games in different parts of the country. They stopped circumcising their children. Uh, they, they spoke Greek. They did trade with other Greek cities. And they said, this is the way forward. This is the future. Get on board or get left behind. And they were in conflict already with Jews who said, no, Judaism is the truth. We need to be loyal to Yahweh. We need to keep worshipping Him. The temple is sacred. Remember exile and what happened last time we walked away from God. And so there was this conflict amongst the Jews, and it was violent at times. Antiochus naturally sided with the Hellenists, those who wanted to become Greek. And so this was already going on before he put in the, uh, the, temple, the, the statues and sacrificed the pigs. But his action took it to another level. And so here we are introduced to another character. This is a priest from outside Jerusalem. His name is Mattathias, the Hasmonean. Don't say it too quickly. Mattathias, the Hasmonean. Now, he was asked to sacrifice, make a sacrifice in the presence of these Greek gods. And he said, I'm not doing it. So another Hellenistic priest, okay, remember they're both priests, another Hellenistic priest steps forward and says, well, I'll do it. It's the future. Well, Mattathias doesn't have any tolerance for this, and he kills him. Now, that still wasn't popular, and so he flees down to the Judean wilderness with his five sons. About a year later, he and his sons had assembled enough of a enough supporters for them to form, whether we want to call it an army, a, you know, a, a band of bandits, and uh, they were able to start fighting back against this Greek op, uh, occupation of Judea, and so they. They, they don't ever confront them in like full-on conflict. You know, the two rows of soldiers you know, charging at each other. Instead, the, um, it, it was Judah, it was uh, Mattathias' son Judah that led the, the group. And he took the name Maccabee, which we believe means hammer. Okay, that was his aggressive nature. He was Judah 
the hammer. And, uh, but, but he would organize them so that they would uh, fight a guerrilla war. And they would strike and run, strike and hide. And they would live in the caves and come down and attack a camp or attack a convoy. And so they, they fought this guerrilla war against uh, the occupying Greek army. And over the next three years, they were able to reclaim control of Jerusalem and they were able to cleanse the temple, restoring it to the worship of Yahweh. Does that feel good to this point? Like, yay! (laughs) Um, Now, maybe this story sounds familiar because it's at this point that the miracle of Hanukkah is supposed to have happened. And so when Judah and his forces come in and they cleanse the temple and they rededicate it, According to rabbinic tradition, they could only find a small jar of oil that hadn't been contaminated. Everything in the temple had been contaminated, right? Because it had the smoke of burning pig flesh going everywhere. But they've got to light the menorah there. It's part of the temple. It's part of the worship. They've rededicated it. And they find this one jar that had been sealed. And so they pour it into the menorah. But it's only enough for one day. It's a small jar. But whether they're, however it goes, whether actual or tradition, um, God made it last eight days. And so it, it, uh, it, it, it was a miracle. It, it shone brightly for those eight days, and in which time they were able to find more oil and refill it and keep it stocked. Interestingly, Jesus himself, towards the end of his life, celebrated the festival of Hanukkah there in the temple. So it it was from an early, early start. But the Maccabees, once they've recaptured or reestablished the the temple, they continue their fight to expand the kingdom. One by one, the brothers die as they lead the the, the, uh, conflict. Eventually in the year, so all that's about the uh, 140s, rather, let me get that right. They recapture in about 164. Okay, so it is when it's, it's that re, the temple is reestablished. And then in um, the Greeks regain control 30 years later, 138. The Greeks are again in control, but they don't ever come back into Jerusalem. They're like, well, you know, just send us your taxes and we'll leave you alone. And then in 129, um, they gain independence. And they are free for 60 years of their own people. Really, they've had a small period under the Hasmonean kings, and then they get some more time now. But in the year uh, 66, it becomes a province of Rome. Rome is spreading its influence. And so Judea becomes a province of Rome. And then the Hasmonean rulers are sort of pushed to the side. And Herod the Great is appointed by the Roman Senate, no less, as king of the Jews in the year 37 B.C. And so from 37 B.C. to until the early years of the A.D., Herod is king in Jerusalem. He does a lot of building, expands the temple, um, and uh, becomes Herod the Great. By the time... Jesus is born under the reign of Herod the Great. Judea is generally a peaceful province. But don't mistake 
peace for peaceful. <laughs> right? You, you see, it's peaceful in that it has an absence of conflict, generally speaking, although there are references, in, again, in, in the Gospels of somebody who, of others who had like, claimed to be the Messiah, had gathered people to them. Because if you can claim to be the Messiah, they were looking for a Messiah. It's like a, 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 an endorsement from God. Right? Never mind the political endorsements that we see on television. I mean, they're all nice that a candidate endorses his own ad. But what if you could get an endorsement from God? So if you could be the Messiah, imagine that advertising, right? My name is Peter, and I'm about to overthrow the Romans, and I'm God, and I endorse this candidate for your support. Right? And so they say, I'm the Messiah. I'm not a rebel. I'm the person anointed by God to fulfill God's purpose. And they would gather people to them. They would try to fight Rome, but they were never terribly successful. Put down very quickly and harshly. In addition to these occasional uprisings, there was also a group of radical Jews called zealots. And zealot really just means somebody that has zeal. So you could be a zealous Christian, couldn't you? But this particular group, uh, they were uh, called zealots. They had a nickname. And the nickname was Sikari. Sikari. And uh, it, Sikari sounds like sickle. And they're related. Because Sikari refers to a small knife or sword with a curved blade that sticks really nicely in the belt under a robe and allowed these zealots to really become assassins or maybe even terrorists. And they would go into crowded places and anybody that was perhaps a tax collector or a Roman centurion or somebody that was associating with Roman rule, well, those knives were put to good use. And, and they would, in a crowded place, they would stab the person, usually killing them, and then disperse into the crowd. And without security cameras, they were able to get away. And so, now if zealot sounds familiar to you, you might recall that one of Jesus' 12 disciples was called Simon the Zealot. That doesn't mean that he killed anyone or that he was one of the Sikari, but it means that he was sympathetic to their efforts to reestablish Jewish independence and the kingdom of God there in Jerusalem through the means, through whatever means necessary, including murder, terrorism, armed conflict, uh, just get it done. And so with all of this going on, you can see why Herod the Great was a little nervous when he heard of a king being born in his kingdom, but not in his palace. You can see why in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, they encounter Simeon, an old man who had been promised by the Holy Spirit, I don't know how, whether in a dream, whether in a voice, whether a prophet had spoken to him, but in, uh, had promised him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's in chapter 2, verse 26. And then Simeon blesses the family, and he says to Mary, his mother, this child is destined, this is in verse 34, this child is destined to cause the falling 
and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. You see, Simeon had been around the block enough times to know that a new king doesn't just come to 100% adoration. That the Messiah, as much as everybody looked forward to him, was going to cause the rise of some people and the fall of others. That people's hearts would be revealed as they either accepted or rejected him. And that Mary, as happy as she was in that moment to be the mother of God's anointed, that at times that her heart would also be struck through. And certainly I think we see that at the cross, if not before. And so Simeon knew that this was not going to be straightforward. Yes, the angels sang of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But that wasn't the short-term response or experience of the people there in Israel. And, and, and I think this is the, the last piece of context that I want to give you, is that people were looking for a Messiah. That song that we, we sang just a few minutes ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That was the plea of the nation of many devout Jews, not all of them necessarily, but many devout Jews who had scoured the Old Testament and the prophecies and had seen that there was God was going to send his anointed, a king, a prophet, a king, someone who would establish the kingdom of God there in Jerusalem. And they were praying, come, oh come, Emmanuel, God with us and ransom captive Israel. That was their hope what they were looking for. So all of this oppression, all of these foreign rulers, all of this conflict, all of this instability, and all of this hope for God to do something miraculous through his Messiah. And so that's the stage. And it's set. And we pick up then in Luke and Matthew next week. And so the title of today's message is simply this. To save our lives, we have to lose them. To save our lives, we have to lose them. Thanks, Ernest. You're going to have to put that up there for me. When we talk about Christmas, we're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. But it doesn't work very well for us to say, Happy Incarnation of the Son of God Day. Could we just say Happy Christmas, right? But we're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, what's the incarnation? The incarnation is God becoming flesh, becoming human. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, it's a, through 11, it's a passage that uh, is, we, we reference often here at Lawson Road and probably at many churches. And it's a, a passage in Paul's letter that uh, it, probably in your Bible, I know it is in mine, is set apart as like a piece of poetry. And so it's perhaps a hymn or maybe an, an early confession or a summary st- statement that Paul has incorporated into his letter because it, it fit what he was saying. He says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. To save our lives, what did Jesus give up? In a sense, he lost himself. He gave up his nature as God. He emptied himself, is the the word that, that is used here. He gave up his position on the throne of God, throne of heaven. And he became a human. And so to save us, Jesus first had to lose himself. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus passes this lesson on to the twelve. We read this just a little earlier. Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. And then in Luke 9 and verse 23, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. There's our paradox from the words of, from the lips of Jesus, right? You can't make sense of that statement without more explanation. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. I think there are different ways of understanding this or applying this. But what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, for a follower of Jesus to lose her life in order to save it? I'm going to give you three uh, steps forward in just a moment. But the reason I spent so long talking about the Maccabees and that period in history is that we need to realize that when Jesus says this, his audience have a choice. The audience can take matters into their own hands and follow in the tradition of the Maccabees. They can rise up like the Maccabees, like they perhaps expected Jesus to do. They can practice their weapons. They can strengthen themselves. They can go to the gym. They can do all the things that they need to do to make themselves powerful, to overthrow the power of the Romans. to to maintain their power, to establish the kingdom, and then say this is the kingdom of God. Or, Jesus says, you can deny yourself. You can take up your cross. You can follow me. Because if you want to save yourself, you first need to not go to the gym, not sharpen your sword, If you want to save yourself, you first need to lose yourself. And whoever loses their life for me, they're the one who will save it. And so that's the choice that they face. Are they going to take matters into their own hands? Are they going to trust the the lessons of history? Those who who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it, right? And they're like, but but we want to repeat it. Sometimes. (laughs) Right? They're like, we want to overthrow the, the oppressive foreigners. We want to establish a Jewish kingdom. 
He says, no, this has never happened in history before. So don't learn from history. Learn from what I'm telling you. That if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. And I think we, say we face similar pressures to save ourselves today. We're not necessarily here talking about our, our salvation and forgiveness of our sins. But I think we face a lot of pressure to make our lives successful. That, that there's a lot of expectation put on us to make a difference in the world. To be a certain type of person. A lot of pressure to live up to expectations. For instance, we face pressure to work harder. If we work harder, we'll please our bosses, we'll please or impress our peers, and of course, we'll please God. We face pressure to clean our houses meticulously. Now, some of us give in to that more than others. But we do that in order to please our families. We do that in order to please and meet the expectations of our friends and, of course, to please God. Because God loves a clean house. And, and perhaps no time of year does this pressure come to the fore any more than Christmas, right? Because people are going to be visiting. It's the end of the year. What have you done this year on the job? What have you accomplished? What do you have to show for it? Did you meet the tar sales targets, the production targets? What's your, your output been? Can you justify your existence? Work harder, do more, be better. Whether it's at work or at home, whether it's, it's what we buy, it's who we buy for, it's what we cook and how much we cook, all of these expectations, what's going to happen in the next month? And only you can do it. And so to lose our lives means to follow Jesus' example. To give up control, to make room for Jesus, and to become like Christ. So the first one is to give up control. I think that's harder for some of us than for others. One author I read suggested developing the routine of starting a day by saying something along the lines of God Take my life today. It sounds a little bit like dying. And I don't think it's meant to say, God, I want to die today. But isn't that what we say, that whole idea of dying to self and living to Christ? So how does our day change if we begin it by saying, God, take my life today. Take it into your hands, into your care. Say, so will you take responsibility for it? And, and so it's not... That, that we suddenly then become mindless robots, but that we want God to set the priorities of our lives. So let me ask, will God be disappointed in us if Christmas dinner only has three vegetables instead of four this year? I, I, I don't know. You know, what, will, will, will God? I don't think so, right? But, uh, but maybe. Will God be disappointed in that? Will God turn his eyes away because we didn't get all of our Christmas cards sent before Christmas? Because some people are going to receive their Christmas cards after Christmas? Is God going to be disappointed in that? Are we going to be disappointed in ourselves? You see, it's so very easy for us to create priorities and expectations for ourselves that actually prevent us from living the life that God wants us to live. And, and so, you know, we, you, you hear the, the fuss about keep Christ in Christmas? 
right? And, and, and usually that means, oh, don't say happy holidays. Right? Or, or go to church on the 25th. Keep Christ in Christmas. Here's what I want to suggest. Keep Christ in your life. Because it's so easy to be caught up in what everything that's going to happen over the next, how many days is it? Somebody knows. 28? In the next 28 days? 29? Somewhere out there. It's so easy to get caught up in that, that we take the Christ out of Christmas. And so the first thing is to give up control. The second thing is to make room for Jesus. And this sounds a little like no room at the inn, right? But do you have room for Jesus in your life? I'm not going to the no room at the inn. Uh, but Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it's a, um, again, I'm just hitting the high points, I think, of Scripture in this sermon. And so it's a, a very, a verse that I reference a lot. But it talks there about be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And again, the point of this, as we're to be disciples of Jesus, to have our minds renewed, is not to try harder. It's to allow God, allow Christ to have greater influence in our lives. And this process requires that we let go. That's why the first step is to give God control. We need to take our minds and make space for Jesus in there. We need to take our calendars and make space for Jesus in there. We need to take our daily schedule and make space for Jesus in there. At our recent leaders retreat, we spent some time practicing a spiritual discipline called the daily office. And it begins with sitting down and you, you come up, you develop a, a greeting that uh, you begin with every day, kind of like holding out your hand and saying, how do you do? And uh, so as you, you greet God each day. And the example given was simply to say, God, thank you for making time for me or making space for me. Help me to make time or space for you. And, and, and that, that idea of, of saying, how am I doing this? How am I creating space in my life for God? Christmas, as I said before, can get so busy Strangely, it's hard to make space for the baby in the manger before the 25th of December. And so number three is to become the body of Christ. Okay. Become the body of Christ. To lose ourselves. is not to lose our identity as individuals because we each have personalities. God's created us in this way. He's given us different appearances, different you know, uh, traits, different gifts. It's not to lose that. But it's easy to think of the incarnation as something that occurred in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. If you want to go back to the incarnation occurring at conception in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And that's certainly where it started. But there's a very real sense in which the incarnation of Christ continues today. In Romans chapter 8, and, and, and the whole chapter is tremendous, but in verse 11 uh, it makes this statement about the Spirit uh, that God has given us that lives within us. And then in verse 14 of Romans 8, I'm going to read there. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you, need, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received 
brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God became flesh, became human. But in the person of the Holy Spirit, as he indwells us, he in a sense becomes human and lives amongst us, just as the person of Jesus became flesh and lived amongst humanity. And so we become like Christ in that way. Children of God even, that are able to call God Abba, Father, because of the Spirit that lives within us. And so the incarnation happened in Galilee and in Bethlehem. But it continues through the body of Christ that is the church and through the body of Christians that are the children of God. So what does it mean to lose ourselves? It means that we accept that we become Christ. That that a lot of the desires that we have, a lot of our priorities, that, that we say, no, I want to be Jesus to the world. And we have to figure out what that means, don't we? And it's a little different for all of us. There was the, you remember the WWJD bracelets, T-shirts, coffee cups, key rings, whatever it was that you wanted, you could get it. And, and that's good, but it also, it kind of leaves people to, to use their imaginations and come up with, what would Jesus do? Well, I think Jesus would do this. No, I think Jesus would do that. So let me, I'm not going to give you another acronym, but instead of asking that question, perhaps just go to God and ask him, what would you, what do you want me to do in this situation? Because that's what Jesus did. And so rather than trying to translate what a first century Jew living under Greek occupation would do in 21st century Rochester, work out what God wants you to do in 21st century Rochester. Through conversation with God, through giving up your own control, through making space in your life for Jesus. And in that way become and live as children of God. And so when we give up control, when we make room for Jesus, when we commit to becoming the body of Christ, to paraphrase Philippians 2, we're on the way to emptying ourselves, taking on the form of a servant, and living in the likeness of God. Because the one who wants to save his life must lose it.